Well, good morning. Welcome to the church in Malvern. Cole today is at Stuttgart Harvest Church. So if you're wondering where he is, well, that's where he is. And you get me today, um, or you have to have me today, depending on how you look at it. Um, you know, American Christianity is kind of, well, um, it's kind of easy. You see, we get to, I don't know if the ter term is we get to eat our cake and have it too, or we get to have our cake and eat it too. I think it's the second. Um, but that's what it is. It's kind of easy on us, um, American Christianity. We don't have to be all that concerned about our health. Um, we don't have to be all that concerned. You know, we, we know we're going to have some clean water to drink. We know we have some snacks in the fridge. Um, we don't have to worry too much about being uh, uh, safe because we're relatively safe in America. We don't have to worry about being persecuted. I, I mean, no, sometimes we think that we're kind of persecuted, but really on the grand scale in the world, we are not persecuted for our faith here in America. So we really have it pretty easy. It's a pretty sweet deal if you kind of look at it from that perspective. But let's be honest, you know, so we kind of give our lives to this, uh, this whole God thing, and we have him stored neatly in the God package or the God box. So we kind of have a, in this one, I, I brought the fanciest box I had. This is uh, going to be our God box today. And so we kind of say, God, this is your area of my life, and you have full access, complete access to everything in this box in, of my life. And then we have all these other boxes though, right? Because we kind of keep our lives categorized. So we might have a work box, a family box. Obviously, for me, this bottom box is my food box. <laughs> and so we have all kinds of boxes. We keep them categorized, and it works best when God stays in his box because we don't need him messing with all this other stuff, right? That's kind of our American Christianity. At the same time, we get to enjoy not only the God box, and, and we do because we recognize this is special. We recognize that. But at the same time, we get to enjoy all of these things in our life. So, but we really want God to stay here and not mess with all of that. So we are really good in America about finding a balance between God and all this other stuff. And so if you were with us last week or the week before, I can't remember when we introduced this, um, we told you about the bell curve. So on one end, I've got a bell curve, so hopefully everybody can see it. On one end, we'll call this this end here, the far end, we've got the extreme, those people who are kind of weird, the people who really, really, really love Jesus and let you know about it. That's the extreme end. And on this other end, we've got people who pretty much hate Jesus or anything related to Jesus. And that's on the other end of this bell curve. And then we have this bell in the middle, right? And that's where most of America probably really is located in that bell curve. That's where most of us are. That is America. We are really good about balancing this and us kind of living. We don't live completely apart from God, but we don't live down here on this extreme end either. We're really good about being in the center, right in the middle of that bell curve, balancing it. So we're not too weird, but yet we don't live like we hate God, right? So we have perfected a middle-of-the-road Christianity. We've perfected it in America. We are really, really... That's my alarm going off saying I need to stretch my back. Actually, that was a phone call, and I think I may have just answered it. So someone may be hearing... <laughs> someone may be getting a, a, a teaching today. Um, if, if you're getting that, I, I'm sorry. So <laughs> I apologize in advance. But we are really good about 
in America kind of perfecting living in that bell curve. Um, We've perfected it. But what we have seen so far in this series, this bell curve style of our living, it's not acceptable to God. It just is not acceptable to him. And here's why. Because it puts us in this bell curve And that bell curve from week one that we talked about is right where we're just kind of riding the fence. It's right where we're just kind of in the middle. We called it a couple weeks ago, God plus worship. And so what we said was, yes, we worship God. We use the word focus, remember that? But yet we also focus or worship on all these other things, many of these other things. So it's God plus all of this. God plus. That's the way we labeled it. That type of Christianity, God plus worship, and we said, it's really not acceptable to God. And honestly, uh, it's in this middle of this bell curve where there's really no changes happening in our life. I mean, maybe some subtle things every once in a while, but usually those are things that we just kind of white knuckle and we change ourselves. It's not really God making changes in our lives because, really, it's where we are in that God plus lifestyle. And life change is, we know this, at the very center of God's plan for you and also God's plan for me. It's part of his process of God, our creator, pointing to this creation. And in fact, not just to this creation, you in this room, but also pointing to what he calls the church, the assembly, the gathering. And it's God pointing to all of those lives and saying to the evil one, saying, see, look, here is the proof. These changed lives prove that I'm at work in this world and that I love this creation of mine, these people. But when we're in the bell curve and we're not changing, or we're changing very little, what does God have to point to? I just have to wonder, does he point to America much at all? Yikes. So, with all of that said, that is our hope for the church in Malvern, and also where Cole is today for Stuttgart Harvest Church that we place ourselves in a new place, a different place in 2023. That we move our lives individually with the help of God out of that bell curve. That's our hope. That's our desire. And so instead of focusing on God plus all these other things that we worship, that as a church we can move more clearly in the direction of God alone. But to get there, well, that's another thing. See, to get there, we said last week, we've got to face the brutal facts. We've got to face the the brutal facts, the brutal facts of of who we are as people and following Jesus, the brutal facts of where we are in this process, the brutal facts of what we have done. We've got to face those brutal facts. We got to face the brutal facts of, of we are where we are in our relationship with God because of the choices we've made. So if we find ourselves in the bell curve, we have to look at ourselves and say, we're there because of the choices we've made. And all of that really revolves, we said this last week, around one question. And that question is this, 
Why don't I love him more? Why don't I love Jesus more? Why do my words say one thing about how much I love Jesus, but yet my actions, no, my actions say something totally different? You see, we have the tendency, if you're anything like me, to live our lives as though Jesus alone is just not quite enough. You know, it's just not quite enough. As Jesus can't quite handle my life. He's not exciting enough or interesting enough or compelling enough. It's almost as if Jesus himself to us, the way we live our lives, Jesus has become boring. Or at the very least, it's as though he's not as compelling as my hobbies and as my work and as <laughs> my free time. He's not as compelling as those other things that are clamoring for the attention of my life, and I so readily give them the attention of my life. You see, these things seem to keep our attention so much more than the God we've placed in this box. These other things just compel us more. But here's something that's amazing to me, especially in light of the fact that we're now in 2023. Listen to this. The fact is that Jesus is the most known name on the planet. It is a fact. You might not be surprised by this. Maybe you are. But just 10 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, the um, I think it was uh, the... Time Magazine. Okay, I was about to say New York Time. It was Time Magazine. Ten years ago, 2013, Jesus was named the most significant person, not of the decade, not of uh, the century, not even of the millennia. He was named the most important name, the most important person of all history. In 2013, you may be surprised by that. I, I was kind of shocked that time would go so far as to say that. In all of world history, in, in, in all of, uh, since the beginning of recorded time, they said Jesus is the most significant person in all of history. But here's the crazy thing about that. He is also, at the very same time, in all of recorded history, he is the least known. At the same time, he is the most known. Here's what I mean by that. Everybody thinks they know about Jesus. I mean, everybody thinks they do. You, if you leave here today, as you leave, and you were to ask 10 people about Jesus, they're going to give you 10 different answers, or at least some kind of answer. Because everybody, even if they hate Jesus, they know about Jesus. They have information about Jesus, something about him. They might quote you a Bible verse. They might give you some history. Uh, they, they might just tell you what they think. But here's the truth. And this is kind of the point of this, this whole example. They likely don't really know Jesus. They likely don't really know the truth about Jesus. And here's the strange thing. This might shock you. That might even be the case in this room today, that we don't really know the truth about Jesus. And here's why. Barna did a uh, study in 2009, I believe, and the study was of people who claim Christianity for themselves, people who are church attenders. And here's what Barna research 
uh, found out. Here's what they, and this is so, so bizarre. So these are people who claim Jesus. Okay, here we go. One out of three church people, that's one third, 33% of all Christians believe that there's a good chance that Jesus sinned. 33% believe that of people who go to church. Now imagine the ratio of people who don't go to church. That's probably so much higher than that. But still, 33, one out of three people who are attending church said, yeah, Jesus yeah, probably, probably did sin a little. Here's another one from the very same study. Almost 60% of the people who were surveyed, they believe this, that God's Spirit, you know, the one that Jesus promised, that when I leave, I'm going to send the Spirit. They believe, 60% of people who go to church believe that was just a metaphor, that it was not real. It was just kind of an example. It was not a real thing that Jesus was going to do. It was just a metaphor of God's Spirit. Now, the reason why this is significant, here's why. Because if Jesus said, I'm sending a spirit, and if Jesus, other people believe, if he said he's doing it and he didn't, and if other people believe that he sinned, here's why this is so amazing. A lying, sinning Jesus is not worth following is not worth pursuing, is not worth loving. Why would you follow that? A lying, sinning Jesus. That's no God at all. When God himself demands that there be no sin and demands that there be truth and honesty, how could we follow a God like that? How could we follow a Jesus like that? A lying, sinning Jesus. I know those are shocking examples, but wow. Those statistics are powerful. In one way or another, though, even here in this room today for us, a lot of us believe the things about Jesus that it's a a little less interesting than maybe what we were shown in the New Covenant by the New Covenant writers. Maybe a little less accurate what we believe according to what they've told us in the New Covenant writings. Maybe, maybe uh, uh, certainly a little less compelling. And listen, these guys who wrote about Jesus and the New Covenant, they knew Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They knew him best. In our minds, if we were to describe Jesus and think about Jesus, take just a moment. Don't say them out loud, but just in your own mind. What words come to mind to describe Jesus in your mind? For so many people, words that come to mind are things like this. uh, Peaceful, meek, pure, uh, gentle, humble, kind. Those are all words that come to mind. And we could kind of summarize all those words. Those words would describe Jesus as, I think we could say, nice. They describe Jesus as nice. And listen, there's nothing wrong with nice. In fact, I, I, I think that possibly we could say Jesus was nice. He was a nice person. Yeah, Jesus was nice. There's nothing wrong with that. I think we can say that. I would have to agree. Yeah, you know what? Jesus probably was nice. But he was nice to certain people. I mean, here's the problem with that word, though. 
the word nice completely misses. It misses that, uh, that, that aggressive side, which was there. It misses that table-flipping impact that Jesus had on almost everybody that he met. Think about this with me for a moment. The people who met Jesus, they did not leave that meeting unaffected or unchanged in some way with everyone he met. Some people met Jesus. They encountered him. Some left still not following Jesus. Many did, most did, but they were still affected and impacted. They were not unchanged. Everyone was affected in some way by Jesus. Jesus turned the world upside down. Jesus was nice, but he was kind of nice in a scandalous way. You know what I mean? He was nice to the wrong people, wrong people, and he was not so nice to the right people that everyone thought he should be nice to. Like I said, it was kind of upside down. But it was not forgettable. In fact, it was unforgettable, and it was undeniable. And why? Meeting Jesus was always life-altering in some way. That's the real Jesus that we discover when we look in Scripture. He was nice to most people that he healed. I mean, there was that one time that he healed a lady, but first he called her a dog. I mean, that's not so nice. And then there was, of course, that time that uh, he uh, turned to his lead disciple and he, and he called him Satan. <laughs> That's not so nice. And you can't forget about all the times that he told the Pharisees, you know, the professional do-gooders, the people whose job it was to professionally follow the law. And he looked at them and he told them that they were hopeless. And in fact, seven times in a row in that passage, he tells them they are hopeless. And then he goes on and he describes that they're just kind of uh, uh, highly decorated uh, graves in a, in a graveyard, you know? That's, that's not so nice. That's not so great. And he says that, and then he ends it by, by telling them that they are a bunch of snakes. Wow. In other words, Jesus calls these guys out and he says, you guys are frauds. You're frauds. Now, that doesn't sound so sugary nice, right? Like we think about Jesus. Now, of course, these professional do-good people, the Pharisees, uh, they responded to Jesus probably a lot like I would have responded to Jesus if he said that to me. It'd be like, Jesus, listen, um, those things uh, that you just said about us, um, uh, uh, those aren't very nice. <laughs> those aren't very nice. And, and, they, and they're also pretty insulting. Jesus, that's kind of insulting. And do you know what happened after they said that to Jesus? Um, Jesus, well, okay, so he backs down. He looks at him and he says, okay, I, 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 I know. And I'm just getting started, is what he said. I'm just getting going. And that's the Jesus. That is the one who we are following, this Jesus that we're following. And, and that just doesn't seem to blend so with nice, just Jesus being nice. It doesn't sound right. So here's the point. Describing Jesus as nice just doesn't come close to telling the whole story about who Jesus is. See, this, this uh, 
Jesus that's just nice, that's not really Jesus. And if that's the way we see Jesus, then we're not really seeing the whole Jesus. And that is so significant because of this next phrase. I I want this to sink in. To have a deep and a close relationship with somebody who we don't really know, it's not going to happen. We can't. We can't have a deep, close, growing relationship with someone that we don't really know. And if all we know is Jesus, who is this nice guy, well, we're not really knowing Jesus. That's not how a relationship with Jesus works. It might be how it began, but it has to grow past that. It has to move further than he's nice and he's kind, which he is, but it has to go past that. A relationship that never moves to that next point, to that next level, then it means we don't really understand and we never really will be able to grow in that relationship because we don't know who we are following. This is so important. It's no wonder why so many of us find ourselves in America in the middle of this bell curve Because our idea of Jesus is just not compelling. And it doesn't move us in that relationship. No wonder we stay there. We don't really know him. Because we don't find him all that interesting. So that tells me. We need the real Jesus. We need to know him more. We need to know who it is that we are trying to follow. Our false caricatures of Jesus have relegated Jesus to this powerless, this uh, ignored piece of art that's just on a wall. That's what we've ended up doing. And there is no power. There is no authority. And that Jesus hanging on the wall is not able to alter or change our lives. We have so niceified him that he's no longer interesting. Somehow we've taken the shocking and scandalous Jesus and we've made him into something that's just average. We've reduced him, this guy that turned the Roman world upside down, we've reduced him to just catchphrases and t-shirts. This was the man whose name was spoken in the palaces of the emperors like Claudius and like Nero. He doesn't move the needle anymore in America because he's just the nice guy, Jesus. Honestly, it doesn't take much of a stretch to understand why so many of us have moved to God plus worship. Because the Jesus that we know and the Jesus that we understand is just powerless. He's just too nice. If the one that we're trying to follow is more like Mr. Rogers or Barney or Mickey Mouse, and less like the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
less like the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, less like the one who spoke and the storms were calm, well then, our connection to him is naturally just going to devolve. It's going to become compartmentalized. And we'll place Jesus in his nice little box and we'll go on with just a life of a Jesus plus transaction. Because nobody wants to follow someone that's uh, like the nice Jesus. It arouses no passion. It moves us not at all. You see, following that Jesus is why I think so many Americans quickly turn to all these other little G gods that we have so many options to follow. Because at least these other little G gods promise to offer us something, something tangible. Because here we can find more fun with our family. We can find more success at work. We can find advancement in careers. We can find uh, more uh, money and more income. And we can find more fun. We can find more exciting things in all of this God plus life. And these things make me feel like I'm actually getting somewhere. I'm doing something. I'm getting some kind of return for my time. Because I promise you this, in the middle of the bell curve, we're not getting any return in our life. Only what we can white knuckle and change ourselves. I want to give you a quote from a millennial. Uh, uh, contrary to popular belief, that's not too far off from my generation. I'm an Xer. Any Xers in the house? Whoop, whoop. <laughs> but let me give you a quote from uh, a millennial. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, Let's see. Uh, yes. Listen to this quote. They say, uh, a millennial, and I, I agree with this. We're not we're, we are not leaving the church because we don't find the cool factor there. No, no, no. They said, we're leaving because we don't find Jesus there. Like every generation before ours and every generation after, deep down, we long for Jesus. And I think that quote sums up our hope for 2023. That we have a longing to meet that Jesus who changed the world. Because he can still change the world. I, I, I believe we're longing to see that kind of Jesus and we want to relate to him. A longing for a Jesus that can completely change a town like Malvern and a town like Stuttgart. That's who we want to worship. But we need to know him in order to worship him. We need to understand him more because that's how relationships grow deeper. We're yearning for a passionate relationship with Jesus. But that relationship only happens when we make a choice to abide in him, to keep our focus squarely on him. Think with me for a moment about marriage. If you're married, this may be easy for you. If you're not married, it may, may not be as easy, but, but, but try to hang in here with me for a moment. Let's think about marriage. Um, if you're married and you want a more fulfilling relationship, 
a more compelling relationship, a more passionate connection relationship with your spouse. And you eat together, but your eyes never meet. You don't ever look at each other. That's not going to get you very far down the road. If you're sitting across from one another and you're eating, and but your eyes never meet and your eyes stay on your screen or on your phone, that's not going to move you very far down the relationship scale. I mean, in that scenario, life very possibly is pleasant most of the time, but the first sign of trouble, maybe the eyes roll and you hear audible sighs. Maybe he heads for the man cave or off for another hunt, and maybe she, well, maybe she heads out with the ladies, or maybe she just heads to the back room to watch some TV by herself. You know what that type of relationship is called? It's called uh, stale. It's called boring. It's called stagnant. See, it's that feeling of there's nothing new to learn about each other. Been there, done that, already know what's about to happen. There's nothing new. I've got the t-shirt. In fact, if you got the t-shirt, probably your wife made it for you on her cricket. <laughs> you know what's coming. There, there, it, that's not going to be anything but stale and stagnant. That's the way it's going to feel. And sadly, that's the way most of us in this bell curve we feel about Jesus. Our relationship with him. Maybe it possibly began kind of passionately and exciting, but it becomes stale as our focus begins to shift from him onto all of these other things in life. And after all, we want a Jesus who keeps us comfortable. We can fit him in this box probably. And he's predictable and he's unobtrusive, doesn't interfere with the other things we're interested in. It's a relationship where ultimately say, Jesus, you have your space and I've got my space. You have yours and I have mine. And let's just you know, keep it that way. I'll visit you in your space. That's where we're going to keep things. You have your space, I have mine. It doesn't start like that, but neither does a stale marriage start that way. It usually starts with passion and excitement, and it ends up passionless and not exciting, and it just gets that way over time. Now, sometimes we might say, yeah, I need to read some scripture. I need to do that. I feel compelled to do that because I haven't been doing it. I feel a little guilty I haven't been doing it, so we read a little scripture. And then maybe we say to ourselves, you know, I need to do some spiritual things because I haven't done much in a while, and I feel like I need to, to keep my God in the box happy. So we do a few things, check them off the list. We attend maybe a little bit. And then after that monumental exertion of effort, (laughs) then we just kind of go back to normal and we settle back into, Jesus, you have your space and I have mine. Sure, every once in a while we might hear something, at least on the week's coals here, (laughs) might hear something that compels us. It might fan some ember into a small flame, but it's usually out by the time we get to lunch. We're just trying to think about now, after we pay for lunch with our credit card, how we're going to pay down the credit card bill. You see, we end up following a boring, unobtrusive, uncompelling, nice Jesus. But in case you were wondering, 
that's not God's plan. It's not God's desire. And in fact, I really believe that God's spirit, who actually is real, will not settle for that kind of life. He doesn't want a relationship where we just tolerate each other. Instead, I believe that God wants an epic romance. We're going to talk about that later this year. A relationship where we, as followers of Jesus, we stay on the cusp of wonder as we think about him. A relationship where we, as followers of Jesus, we are just in this state of awe. A a relationship that contains a feeling of excitement and a feeling of mystery. What would happen if those were the words that described our relationship with Jesus? If the words of wonder, if the words of excitement and mystery and passion described how we related and what we thought of Jesus. Now, I think that would change everything. And I'm not naive enough to think that this is the first time that you have ever heard someone like me say something like this. But for just a moment, would you consider, would you consider a passionate relationship? Uh, my wife this morning is in first look this morning with the preschool age children. Uh, But when I think about my relationship with her, I can say this, she's not here in this room. When I think about my relationship with her, there's this gravitational pull that exists. Um, I think you'll understand what I'm saying because you've probably experienced it too. Even today, when I enter a room, one of the first things that I'm doing is looking for my wife. I want to make eye contact with my wife. I want that connection. I want to see her. And then the next thing I'm going to do is find a way to get closer to her, wherever she is in that room, no matter who she's talking to. I'm just going to find a way to get closer. I'm going to move in to get closer. It's that gravitational pull that she has on my heart and she has on my mind. She has on my thoughts. I just want to get closer. I'm looking for Vanessa. When she walks in the door, I am drawn to her. I want to be where she is. I actually like being in her presence. I love it. I know this might be muddy and you might be saying, Harley, you are cheesy. Maybe so. But I hope you can consider this comparison in our relationship to Jesus. There's just something about Jesus and we are being drawn to Jesus. It's as if we're moving through life during this day in and out of rooms, in and out of things, in and out of activities, but there's something about it that our eyes and our heart, and even though that is all going on, our eyes and our hearts are still fixed on Jesus, wanting to be close to Jesus, wanting to be in his presence near him, wanting to make as best we can this side of heaven and him on that side of heaven to make some kind of spiritual eye contact with Jesus. And I promise you, that kind of relationship with Jesus is not going to grow stale. It is going to stay interesting and fresh and spiritually passionate. It's a life that is centered on Jesus, a life that is worshiping Jesus and Jesus alone. We talked about him week 
one. It's a life where we let Jesus out of his box and we say, Jesus, you can free range into my entire life, into every compartment that I have. You can free reign, and that is yours as well. It's a life that's centered on him. It, it, it is this us experiencing a gravitational pull toward him because it is a life that orbits around him. I, w- I want to pause for just a moment and say something about that. We experience a gravitational pull toward him because it's a life that orbits around him. So here's what that looks like. As we are following Jesus, we are not so naive to think that we are like this with Jesus. I can barely do that. I need to work out my fingers. That we're like this with Jesus all the time. There are moments in our lives, and it may be in our week, it may be in our day, but we have a tendency, if Jesus is here, right here in the center, and we have a tendency to kind of get away from him, but something happens right about here, that pulls our life back around towards Jesus. It's that gravitational pull that he has on our hearts. And we so we're living that and we get closer to Jesus, but then something happens in our day and our focus kind of gets shipped and we still get pulled away a little bit. We get a little, but something happens and it pulls our life back around for Jesus and our life is orbit. So that's what it looks like. It's not this all the time, but it's not this. And it's not the bell curve. Our hearts gravitationally are compelled. And our life keeps orbiting, keeps circling with Jesus at the center of our lives. You see, I don't learn more about Jesus with my mind and then suddenly I'm closer to Jesus. No, those are more what we would call steps or, or tricks or best practices. That's how we've referred to those in this series. But they don't work for a gravitational pull because that comes from the heart. That comes from a relationship. No, I follow him because I'm drawn to him. I simply want to be near him. It's the kind of relationship that God's Spirit wants to create in our lives. And because I want to be near Him, and I'm drawn to Him, and I'm orbiting around Him because of that, it gives me this insatiable desire to know more about Him. Do you see how that works? I don't know Him and then am close to Him. No, I'm close to Him, and it gives me a desire, an insatiable desire to know more about Him. So I jump back in the Word. Does that make sense? To discover more and more and understand more and more as best I can. That's what happens because you develop this insatiable desire for a relationship with Jesus, a deeper relationship. And it's amazing. The more I get to know Him relationally, this God of mine that I'm following, then the more close I feel to Him. And the more I feel that gravitational pull. But here's a strange thing. Mark this down too. Also, the closer I get to him, sometimes the more confusing he becomes. That's a head scratcher. Because sometimes 
the more I get to know him, the more I find things that I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus, you want this? This is your desire? This is your strategy? This is your plan? And it becomes a head scratcher and I get confused. But because he's at the center and my life is so pulled and drawn towards him, even in those moments of those head scratching, confusing moments, I still don't give up and walk away because my heart is drawn towards him. I'm not serving him. This is what it looks like as we follow him and as we know who he really is. We're not following him out of obligation. We're not checking off boxes so that he can be good to us because we've done some good things. No. No, that's not what it's about. Now, some of you, you're beginning to wonder, are we ever going to get to Scripture? (laughs) Here we go. Some of you have read about that time when Jesus fed all those people in the county, and it was 5,000 men. And then you can include into that the vast number of women and children. And he fed them with just a mere five loaves and two fishes. So he does this enormous, great, big, huge miracle. They all see it. They all witness it. And by this time, a great multitude of people have been following Jesus around. Let's make sure we say that. They weren't really following Jesus. They were just kind of following him around. They went where he went. But many of these people were not really satisfied with following him, just following him around. Um, They were getting fed. That was a big reason. That was a huge deal in the first century. They knew there was going to be a meal involved. That was good. So they were following him with that. But also they were following him um, because, well, really, they knew they were going to get a show of some sort, too. So there was some great entertainment value of following Jesus. So about this time, Jesus is looking at all of these multitudes who are just kind of hanging around him where he is, and Jesus does something that a contemporary church pastor or church planter would never do. He decides to cut bait. He decides to say, listen, we need to get rid of some of these people. It's the opposite of church growth. And so here's what happens. Jesus is with these people. He decides, I need to turn up the heat. Some of these people who are hanging around, he said, I need to turn the heat up and I need to make it, uh, give them an easy exit. I need to help. I need to show them the door. This is not like the nice Jesus, right? This is not where our minds go. This is what something Jesus really, really did. So he's saying they're not really following. They're just kind of here. So we're going to set the scene here and give them an opportunity to exit. So he makes things really, really uncomfortable in this moment. This is where we're going to pick up the story. Um, Jesus makes things very uncomfortable. Here's what he says. Uh, It's recorded in John John chapter 6. And John was there for this, so he writes it down. So they replied. So many people in the crowd, as they were talking, they replied to him, and he heard it over and over again. Hey, listen, we want to perform God's works. We want to do that too, they said. What should we do? They asked Jesus. In other words, we want to do stuff like you're doing, Jesus. That's really cool. It's pretty radish. 
We want to do that. And here's what Jesus told them. This is the only work that God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Now here's the strange thing. Let me paraphrase what's coming next. Jesus continues this conversation. He turns the heat up a whole lot. He turns it up higher and he turns it up higher and higher. And he finally makes a statement that is so outlandish. It is so unreasonable. It is so extreme that many people who are there listening to them, at that moment, they decide to hit the road. He tells them that if they want eternal life, they're going to have to drink his blood and eat his flesh. Exactly. They're going to have to drink his blood and eat his flesh. Now listen, that is hard for them to understand. And I want to tell you, that's hard for us to understand. And in fact, I I, I hate bringing up things that we don't have time to unpack. I wish we could unpack that statement. It is amazing. We don't have time to unpack that statement today. But it impacted those people. Jesus knew it would, and that's why he said it. It was shocking. And so after he said that, the people began kind of arguing among themselves, naturally. And it gets to the point where Jesus turns and he asks them because of of what's happening based upon what he said. And he says this, does this offend you? I mean, listen, guys, is, is this too much for you to hear? He knew it was. Is this too much for you to handle? Huh? Is it a little too much? He knew it was. In verse 66, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. It was too much. What they thought about Jesus and then the reality that they came face to face with was too much. And they turned away. They were no longer interested in following that Jesus. The Jesus they had imagined, the Jesus they had contrived, they were willing to follow him. The food maker, the showstopper. But when it got uncomfortable, they weren't willing. And here's what happened in verse 67. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked, Are you also going to leave? He looks at his closest followers at this point, those who knew him the best so far, and he asked them, are y'all still in? Are you going to take off too? Is this also too much for you? And it's no surprise, Peter speaks up at this point. This is is pretty amazing. Peter speaks up, and as he always did. Uh, So Peter speaks up, and here's, here's what happens. He says this, Lord... To whom would we go? Now, what we're hearing from is the life of somebody who has been ruined by Jesus. Ruined for anything else but Jesus. Lord, to whom would we go? It's as if Peter is saying, listen, Jesus, I've thought about this. Honestly, Jesus, your words have staggered us too. 
They have blown us away as well. Listen, Jesus, those people who left, all of those people who left that we thought were on team Jesus, we really need those people, Jesus. Listen, honestly, if you would just soften your teaching a little bit, Jesus, just make it a little easier, maybe make it a little more calm, just slow it down a little bit, Jesus, don't be so extreme. Jesus, listen, maybe be a little nicer. Maybe that would help, Jesus. See, there was something different about these 12 followers, Jesus. Their hearts were drawn to Jesus. Their lives had already begun to orbit around the life of Jesus. They were ruined for anything except Jesus. And then Peter looks around and, and, and I'm sure the others were agreeing with him. And he says, Jesus, to whom shall we go? Jesus, nothing compares to you. Listen, Jesus, nothing compares to you. I, I, we could, Jesus, go back to this lifeless formalism, this formal religion that we were all a part of, we could go back to that. Yes, Jesus, we could go back and live in that for the rest of our lives and let that be our past, our present, and our future. Or Jesus, we could choose to, to, to seek after some of these other little G gods that we've compartmentalized. We could go choose to run after some of those. Or we could just decide to quit believing and just wash our hands of it all and just give up. Jesus, we could do that. But Jesus, honestly, where else are we going to go? Where else? Jesus, we are all in. Jesus, we can't leave. Jesus, your pull on our lives is too great. And here's the words, here are the words that, that Peter used. He said, you have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Have you ever heard a statement like this? You, usually it's kind of on a wedding day or when a wedding's coming up, and it's usually the groom who says this, and he says, well, I finally found the one I can live with. I finally found her, found the one I can live with. And yes, it's funny, and we slap our knees, but you know what it should be? He should be saying, I finally found the one I can't live without. And Peter is saying, and I hope our hearts are saying, Jesus, where would I go? Jesus, where would I go? I am ruined for you. Jesus, I can't live without you. The law is not enough anymore. The rules I've been following are not enough anymore. I can't just check the spiritual boxes anymore. Jesus, I am ruined for anything except you. And that makes me hungry to know more and more and more about you, Jesus. I want to read you what one theologian wrote. This is, this is great. Listen to that. It's kind of a long quote. He says, if anyone claims to have met Jesus without being changed, he's not met him at all. He said, everyone's reactions can be summarized with one word, wonder both for his enemies who killed him and his disciples who worshipped him. Wonder. Even agnostics walked away, shaking their heads, mumbling, no one ever spoke like this man. 
And if he didn't stop, they were eventually going to have to choose a side with his killers or with his worshipers. They were shocked. And Jesus' shock breaks your heart in two and forces you to choose which half of your heart will you follow. What a great quote. Look at those who followed him, those who were close to him. We look at those and we say, that could never be me. But those people were just like you and me. But in our own lives, it is never going to be possible to understand him more, never possible to know him more, to embrace him more. If our approach to Jesus is characterized really by a casual interest or a benign pursuit, because that kind of relationship will always grow stale very quickly over time. The only practical way to understand Jesus, to know Jesus more, and really the only way we see in Scripture is to go all in with Jesus. You see, I can't adequately explain to you why we need to do this. I wish I could, but I can't. It would be like me trying to describe to you what it feels like for us to jump in and be submerged in water. I can try to use words to explain that, but you will never really understand what it feels like to be submerged in water, to jump into water, until you jump into water. You see, contrary to popular belief, a little bit of Jesus does not go a long way. In fact, it takes a lifetime of pursuing, going all in with Jesus, worshiping him and him alone in a, in a, in a passionate, spiritually passionate relationship with Jesus. That's what it takes. Wanting to understand him more. That is a direct response to us getting to know him more. I love how in the book of Zephaniah, which you've probably never heard a teaching from before, it's a real book in the Old Covenant. And Zephaniah prophesies and says that God is going to sing a song over Israel. I love that. And I just think to myself, what if God sang a song over us. What might that be like if God chose to sing a song over us? And as we think about that, here's where maybe our minds could go. This might be the song, the words that Jesus, I'm not going to sing it, it would be offensive. These are the words that we think of that Jesus might sing over us, and here they are. Please, 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 just love me, please. I'll take anything you give me. Just give me some of your love. If I can't have it all, just, just give me something. Even if I have to share you with all the other loves of your life, just give me something, please. A little is better than nothing. But this will probably be the last time I ever get to use this phrase, this next phrase. Probably the song that God sings over us would sound more like Frank Sinatra. I'll never get to say that again. When Frank Sinatra sang all or nothing at all. 
Half a love never appealed to me. If your heart, it could never yield to me, then I'd rather have nothing at all. All or nothing at all. That's what Peter gave him. He said, Jesus, to whom shall we go? Now, I want to give you our bottom line today. You're saying, Harley, I thought you would never get there. I understand. The bottom line today, here it comes. If we believe in the wrong Jesus, the relationship isn't going to work out. If we believe in the wrong Jesus, that relationship is never, ever, ever going to work out. And this is the question that we have asked in this series. And we have now three weeks in, in 2023. So three out of our 52 weeks to talk about Jesus in this format as a church, we have been doing this for three weeks. But here's what I want you to know. Our hope is that over the, the 52 weeks of 2023 that we can go all in with Jesus, the Jesus. And the only way to do it is if we know the real Jesus, not the Jesus we've created in our minds, not the Jesus that we think he is or we want him to be. Our desire as a church in 2023 is that we get to know the real Jesus, not so that we can check a spiritual box and say, I'm, I've been good, God. I've been good. Look what I've done. No, 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 no. We're not going to give you any tips. We're going to do our best not to give you any tricks. We're not going to give you best practices this year. We want to give you and point toward the real Jesus. And you won't do it because I've asked you to or because Cole has asked you. The only way you'll do it is if you see in your life, I have no other choice because I'm being ruined by Jesus. Ruined for anything else but Jesus. This series, we're just trying to introduce the concept of where we are going all year long. And can you imagine how the real Jesus and you with a life orbiting around him, how that will change your life, it will change your family, it will change your marriage and your relationships and your work environment if we will simply pursue Jesus the way he pursued us when he came to this earth. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and they deserted him. And Jesus turned to the twelve and he asked, Are you also going to leave? Lord, Peter said, To whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus, we are ruined for anything but you. Let's pray.